Welcome to Safer Roads by Protective Insurance. Expertise to help you protect your fleet. Hello, and welcome to Safer Roads, presented by Protective Insurance. On this show, we sit down with experts from Protective to dive into the information they've gathered working as dedicated members of the transportation community over the last 100 years. These thought leaders and industry experts will share their experiences protecting people and supporting safer roads. I'm Rudy Sallow. I'm a lawyer in a large U.S. law firm where I advise on financing infrastructure and transportation systems throughout the entire U.S. I'm also a Forbes.com transportation contributor, public speaker, law professor, and podcaster. And today, we launch into a four-part series on medical financing. Joining me in this series are two very special guests from Protective, the Senior Vice President of Claims, Nathan Lundquist, and the Executive Vice President of Claims, Jeremy Goldstein. Today, they explain how medical financing can lead to a nuclear verdict and how medical financing differs from litigation financing. Hey guys, let's start off by you telling us a little bit about yourselves and your backgrounds. Jeremy, go ahead. Oh, sure. I'll I'll start off. So I'm the executive vice president of claims at Protective Insurance Company. And Protective has been around, coming up on 100 years, basically ensuring the trucking space, trucking and transportation. So I started off as a lawyer in Chicago in civil litigation. I was trying cases, started out actually on the plaintiff side, moved over to the defense side, stayed up there for about 10 years, and then decided to take an in-house position at Protective Insurance, and then moved into the claims department. That's fantastic. David? Yeah, so I'm a senior vice president of claims at Protective, overseeing and leading the, the liability claims, anything with wheels, basically, right? So our excess products, our first-party damage products, and our third-party liability products. Been here about eight years all in the claims world prior to coming over here i was in private practice here in in indianapolis in business litigation fantastic okay so here we're going to be talking about a lot of things that many people including myself are not a hundred percent familiar with i think a good idea is for us to actually define the two topics that we're going to be unpacking today, which are medical financing and nuclear verdicts, including some discussion about the different industry variations of those, depending upon what industry that you're in. But let's start off with defining medical financing. What is it? Sure. Uh, This is Nathan. So medical financing doesn't really have a firm definition. Awesome. At Protective, we sort of used it as shorthand to encapsulate a lot of things. Starting out, it was really the defined as the interjection of a capitalized third party to the uh, doctor-patient relationship. And what I mean by that is the finance company coming in and providing funds to a doctor to cover their overhead for procedures and then allowing that doctor to treat on a volume basis and turn around and collect a profit at the end. So provider would pay back the overhead cost plus a kicker. And that's sort of where it started. But since then, you know, we sort of use that as a, a shorthand to springboard into, you know, the lean based medical treatments 
uh, letters of protection that have exploded in recent years, Texas and, and Florida come to mind. And why have those exploded? Uh, can you give us a little bit about why those are happening in those particular states? Yeah, lots of reasons. I think one of the, the primary reasons is it, it's profitable, it's lucrative. It is a situation where you have a claimant who is seeking treatment related or unrelated to the accident at issue for a protective, but the doctor is treating that and saying, here, sign this letter of protection, and then I will get my funds at the end. One of the reasons it's important that we're talking about medical finance is that for a, a long time, plaintiff's personal injury cases kind of had their own cadence, right? And, you know, for for 50 years, the idea was is that someone was injured, they went to see, they were injured in a car crash or some other way, they went to see a plaintiff's attorney, a plaintiff's attorney either sends them or they go to a doctor on their own, and then they seek some medical treatment. The medical treatment and the, and the doctor's decision to treat was kind of based on the availability of either private health insurance or the doctor's willingness to sort of carry those costs until the case was resolved or settled. Now, medical finance kind of enters the ballgame in various different forms and allows the doctor some insur- assurance, essentially, that the treatment that he or she provides will end up getting paid for and get a good return on it. So it's kind of, kind of given a preference to doctors that they're going to, to get paid for what they did or what they will be doing, which can have a, a big effect on the case, the underlying case. And keep in mind with what Jeremy was saying, that in states that are collateral source states, the only thing that the jury will see will be that billed amount, not the reasonable and customary amount or the you know sort of usual and customary, however you want to phrase that. So if the charge master is $1,000, but it's really a $200 reasonable and customary, the jury will only see that, that $1,000. And so that there's an incentive there to, to have that build amount as high as possible for presentation of medical damages to the jury. The difference is, so if you, if you look back up a little bit, so if we tie everything to a charge master rate, so sort of the, the compendium of charges that a, a doctor can issue, charge master is this really, really high rate. Insurance pays, medical insurance will pay a small percentage of that charge master. So over the years, you see charge master go up as they try to finagle where they want ultimate payout to be for a procedure. So if insurance company says, I'm only paying 20% this year, but I paid 21% last year, you will see Chargemaster go up. And because of those changes, you've seen courts start to say that Chargemaster is, is almost arbitrary. It doesn't have a, a connection to reality anymore. But if you're treating on a letter of protection, that letter of protection is being charged at Chargemaster rate, not at insurance rate. And so you're seeing a higher base cost, if you will, being billed for a procedure. So if it was a simple $1,000 procedure and charge master is that $1,000, insurance would pay 200 roughly. So instead of the bill being 200, it's a thousand under the letter of protection. So it, it's sort of a lucrative avenue for, for medical providers and for folks that are buying those liens 
pending resolution of the case. So they'll buy those liens at a discount and then turn around and hold those liens third party to try to get sort of full boat on those at the end of the litigation. Thank you for that, Nathan. That's actually very helpful. And here's something that I have been wondering about, and I'm sure that our audience is going to as well. You have both talked about wheels. You've both talked about transportation. Let's tie transportation to medical financing. How do those two work? And why are we talking about that on this very first episode? You want me to take a stab, Nathan, and then you can follow up? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. From my perspective, the reason why we're talking about this is that we've been looking at transportation cases and adjusting and settling transportation cases for a long time. And we noticed about, call it five years ago, five, six years ago, the cost of settling those cases and what plaintiff's attorneys were holding out for became a lot more than we had seen. So we were seeing these rising costs. And we decided to kind of drill down into what may be happening. We, we saw that medical bills were obviously going up, and that led us into the area of medical finance. And the question, your original question was, well, why medical financing and transportation? Why are those connected? I, you know, my belief is, is that transportation, big trucking fleets, they carry a lot of insurance. And so that it's very lucrative in terms of the injury practice there because you're chasing large limits. Think a million, five million, sometimes a hundred million dollar towers for these large companies, that kind of thing. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for medical finance if the idea is to make money out of it, if the total settlement is going to be a $20,000 auto policy or a $50,000 auto policy. Instead, if you believe the premise that medical financing can increase the amount of medical bills, that kind of thing, and really kind of juice the value of an injury, then you're going to want to associate it with industries that have large insurance uh, limits. Okay. So perfect. As an attorney, I get it now. And this is what I'm going to extrapolate from what you're saying. A number of years ago, you, you guys obviously were doing your jobs and you're seeing where costs are going and where kind of the directions are. So who you don't want to listen to this podcast, perhaps, is probably plaintiff's attorneys, right? Because the, the, any, any of them that are out there that were thinking about these smaller limits, these car insurance and things, if they didn't know previously that there are bigger insurance limits, i.e. bigger cases, i.e. bigger dollars for contingency-based fees back to them, it appears that it's in the trucking industry. Is that correct? Just to sort of expand on what Jeremy was saying. We're truck talking about transportation because that's what we do, right. Right? right? So that's the connection for us. But you can think of it in, in GL claims as well, slip and fall claims. Basically, if there's a corporate defendant, and I guess I should back up, I don't think we should discount the fact that this happens in small cases too. Oh, okay. Okay. But where we see it, and if you know, we go back to sort of the you know ground zero for us on this, was a case with a claimant that had had some surgeries value we saw significantly less than where plaintiff's counsel saw it. And then we eventually start getting into the records and we see that at some point she switches from health insurance to a letter of protection and you start seeing these liens being sold. And so, and that's where you sort of, you know, open your eyes a little bit, I guess, to, to something that's probably been going on long before we saw it. And once you get that information and there's sort of an added factor with plaintiff's lawyer on that one having a 50% contingency, which sort of stands out as problematic. 
But you know, once you get that information, you can start to see what the barriers to resolution are because the numbers they were saying they needed just didn't make sense. And then you start seeing that, well, there's a, you know, a medical lien standing out there for three or $400,000 that should be about 100. And once you're able to resolve that and you know, sort of negotiate that piece down and get an understanding with plaintiff, and in this case, plaintiffs was sort of you know, salt of the earth person, just wanted to make sure she had enough money in her pocket to cover what was expected to be a future procedure. And so once we were able to sort of explain to her costs and where we saw this going, we were able to resolve it, but that was the sort of the the opening salvo for us to say, okay, we need to look at this. And you know, unfortunately, Protective's leadership said, "Hey, that sounds like a great idea, Nathan. Why don't here here's a little little pocket of money for you to go research this, learn about it, and see the prevalence of the practice." And you know, so as a result, you sort of start picking this up more and more in in, in states across the country. So would you say, Nathan, then that perhaps just throwing this out there, that if we were to come up with a title for this episode one, would it be the problem of medical finance for the insurance industry? Would that be correct? Since since it sounds like what you just talked about is, OK, you have a claimant, you know, she just they just want to you know get back, hopefully, to where they were at before the accident. And they want to maybe have some small amounts of money with, with them they or their plaintiff's attorney gets involved with medical financing and all of a sudden the bills skyrocket and it's very difficult for you, the insurance company, to get back to the same place. So is that what we're talking about here, the problem of medical finance in, in the negotiations of claims? I mean, certainly that, that's a factor. You see inflated meds, you know, but you know, part of what encapsulates medical finance in our definition, right, or are sort of other pieces like referral networks between plaintiffs, lawyers, and doctors, where you start seeing, you know, lawyers that are part of a referral network are referring within that own network for doctors because they they pay to participate. You know, attorney directed care. So when you start seeing things like, you know, claimant X needs, you know, occupational therapy, but I can't find anybody that treats OT on a letter of protection. Can we do physical therapy instead? Well, there's a there's a significant difference between OT and PT. Absolutely. And so if 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 they need occupational therapy but can't get it, and now the you know the the case manager at the lawyer's office is saying, well, let's get physical therapy because I can find that on a letter of protection basis. And so yes, it can it can be a problem because you see increased bills. You know, there's this sort of phrase circulating of phantom damages. It's damages that no one's ever going to have to be responsible for to pay back because they're documented, but they're not necessarily collectible, although on paper they are, right? These letters of protection are 100% collectible against the patient on paper. And so you have a patient that has $100,000 in meds that reasonable and customary should be 25000 Theoretically, that patient is on the hook for the full hundred thousand, regardless of the outcome of of the litigation. Now, we have strong knowledge that that's not how that works in reality, right? If the litigation goes south, the patient isn't always going to be on the hook for that. They'll negotiate that down or write it off, or you know, they'll work their own magic on that side of the the V, if you will, depending on the outcome of the litigation. 
but it's so it, it's sort of a convoluted like an onion kind of problem maybe more than just a, a statement problem yeah no thank you thank you for that just kind of piggybacking what you're saying when you're talking about the financing arrangements perhaps if you if either one of you Nathan or Jeremy can very simply explain the financing arrangements that are set up in medical financing that might help to shed a little light here about we'll talk about legalities a little bit later but you know ethics here it really seems like a, like a topic medical ethics and legal ethics sounds like something maybe cloudy but can either one of you speak to the arrangements sure so unfortunately it's not a uniform arrangement okay okay so it's not like that's one difference from litigation financing which we'll talk about in a second yeah, yeah, yeah. If we wanted to tie it to a comparison to litigation finance, it would be probably most similar to what I would consider the consumer litigation finance, where the client will take out sort of a lit loan to pay essentials, if you will, during the course of litigation, you know, help meet the needs to pay rent or whatever. But it's still really an apples and oranges discussion at that point, just because they're treated so much differently, you know, legally as well as collectability on the back end. So there's there's not a uniform definition. You'll have, like I was getting to earlier, right, medical providers that will have financing in place to cover their overhead that basically allows them to treat and not have to worry about maintaining enough cash flow to cover their overhead. Yes, ultimately they will, but they, they can treat on a volume basis if somebody else is covering the overhead on the front end. So that that's one structure. And then, you know, settlement comes around, uh, doctor will get paid back whatever portion they agree to, finance company will get paid back their initial contribution to cover that overhead, and then the financing fees and interest and, and kickers and everything else is part of that arrangement. Under the letters of protection, doctors you can probably break it up into two most easily. One is doctors treating under a letter of protection. And as they've done it longer and longer, they can afford to hold that paper. So it's a letter of protection that has a very, very large fee attached to it that they will hold until the end of the litigation. They collect more money that way. The other structure is what you would consider sort of old school medical factoring just on a bigger scale. They treat on a lien basis and then they turn around and sell those liens for a discount to get that cash now, which typically is more than still at or above sort of reasonable and customary numbers. And then you now have a third party finance company holding those liens, expecting, you know, obviously to make more than they paid for the liens and sometimes significantly more. And so if I was breaking it up, I'd put it in sort of those three buckets as most prevalent. Rudy, the third part that Nathan was talking about can be related to sort of what I was talking about for the last 50 years that things were happening. If somebody was in an accident, they ended up going to a doctor who gave them a, a treatment and had $75,000 worth of medical bills. And then you went through the litigation process. And for whatever reason, everyone decides to settle for $100,000. Well, you know, you'd look at it and you'd say, well, the $75,000 medical bill, that, that only gives $25,000 to the plaintiff to split with the attorney, right? But the attorney is already probably taking 33 or 40% of that. So what do you do? So in, in the sort of, sort of older school method, the way it would 
would typically work out is, is that the plaintiff would get a third, the lawyer would get a third, and the doctor would get a third, and the rest of the medical bill would be erased. Now, if the doctor has then sold his lien early on for that one-third portion to a finance company, that one-third that finance company is not going to be happy with a third because that's what they paid for it. So they're going to want 70, 80, 90% of, of that $75,000 to go to go with them so that they can make money in the deal. And that's, that's, you know, one of the ways that you can clog up the cadence of settlements in, in there. Okay. That actually makes a lot of sense. And when you were talking earlier, Nathan, about it can be very lucrative, right? That's what, when you were when you were defining medical financing, you you, you actually use that term. Lucrative for for whom? Is that for those third party finance companies? Is that for the attorneys? Is that for the doctors? Who can this be lucrative for? So yeah, I mean, it sort of depends on the situation, right? But obviously, the medical financing company wouldn't be in it if it wasn't lucrative. So that's the that's probably the easiest one to throw in the mix, but also for the medical providers that are treating on a lean basis, because now certainly if they're holding that paper, they're looking to collect more than usual and customary costs. They're looking to collect the evidence in the lien for the full amount, and then they'll negotiate down from there. It could also benefit uh, plaintiff's lawyers by increasing the value of a claim. If you... so. You know, we were just talking about the the old school way of, you know, a third, a third, a third. One of the other methods was three times specials. And so if specials were 100,000 and now they're 300,000, that 100,000 could be a $300,000 settlement or the 300,000 in meds could be a $900,000 settlement. And plaintiff's counsel will get it. Really quick. When you say specials, you mean special damages. Just want to just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. Medical specials, like they're medical bills. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Sorry. So... Obviously, if you're taking a third of 900, that, that's going to be better than a third of 300. And so you can see it there. And the same holds true for plaintiffs. You know, the, the example I gave early on was, you know, a sort of salt of the earth claimant comes in and just wants to make sure she gets enough money in her pocket to cover expected additional procedure. Not all claimants are that way. So if a claimant could have a procedure done, to increase the value of a claim, it could be more lucrative to plaintiffs. And I'm not suggesting that that plaintiffs go out of their way to have unnecessary procedures, but in terms of you know the possible beneficiaries of this, it's all of those. Depending on the setup, it'll vary by case. And you know, sort of coincidentally, it also benefits defense lawyers. Two, because we have a lot more expensive discovery to go through, right? And so they get to build their time to do that, not sort of intentionally profiting off of this. But it, I mean, it's, I think it's important to talk about the increased cost of litigating these cases too. That's sort of the avenue for that discussion. It, you know, our defense counsels are, are really good at sort of ferreting this stuff out, but it's sort of takes a little bit of intestinal fortitude to be willing to go through some of those steps. And when you say they're really good at ferreting this stuff out, so let's say they learn that there is a medical financing arrangement here and they, and they kind of get behind it and they, they look at it and may, perhaps there are some unnecessary medical procedures. 
So that will work in a trial, right? To a jury, a, a defense counsel will bring bring this stuff up and and try to, you know, kind of expose this arrangement. Is does, does that happen in these cases? So again, it depends on the state, right? Some states will say you're not getting any of that information. Okay, it's notoriously difficult to get that information in California, for example. But in states like Georgia and Texas, we've had a lot of success, sort of directing what that discovery should look like, what we're trying to get. And then once we get it, you know, moving in Texas, we can do, you know, affidavits and counter affidavits on reasonable and customary, and then they can come testify live too. But, you know, if there is sort of a, a quote unquote nefarious relationship, so a referral arrangement between a plaintiff's lawyer and a provider, and you can see those communications where, for example, a plaintiff's lawyer is telling the medical provider that the client was involved in a subsequent accident, but liability is disputed, so continue to treat them under the primary loss. Those kind of communications, which we see when we get the electronic medical record files of the doctors, as well as the communications between plaintiff's lawyers and providers, you see those types of communications. And so yeah, if there's an attorney directing care and there's a medical provider communication that is indicating that maybe that care should be tied to a different case, it's really hard for the lawyer or for the medical provider, I'm sorry, to stand behind a causation opinion that this accident caused the subsequent medical treatment. I think another um, example of that or or another illustration is that when we're talking about medical finance and we're talking about a questionable surgery or or a questionable medical procedure that happens at trial, we've always been able to bring our own expert witness or our own doctor in defense of a case that could, could say, well, that treatment just wasn't necessary. The problem becomes with medical financing, the opportunity to have the surgery in the first place or the unnecessary medical procedure in the first place is there because there's a a way to finance it or a way to pay for it. So maybe, maybe in the past, there wasn't as much opportunity so that medical procedure never would have happened, that nobody would have taken the risk on that to have it performed. And instead, the plaintiff would have argued, we may need to have this surgery sometime in the future rather than we've already got the surgery and it's been taken care of, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, it does, you know, and I'm actually, um, that arrangement makes sense. So I, I, completely, I completely understand that. I, I know there's, there's two other topics that we did want to really briefly touch upon, and that's very quickly, what are the differences between medical finance and litigation finance since we've talked about the arrangements? And, and finally, I, I really want to know what the what your definitions of a nuclear verdict is. But <laughs> let's start really quickly of, uh, of uh, I know that's a lot to talk about, but we have four episodes here. This is the first one. We're going to go into further details here, but I think this would be a good lead up to talk about those two items. But first, what's the difference between medical finance and litigation finance? Sure. So let's break litigation finance down into to two buckets. So you have sort of the the higher level lit finance where you'll have an arrangement with a law firm. Wilkie announced their $50 million deal with like Longford, I think, earlier this year to make those funds available. So we don't really deal with a lot of that. I mean, that, you know, that's to fund like, you know, products cases and, and, and that kind of stuff more than 
sort of what I call the consumer litigation finance, which is you know loans to to bridge gaps for claimants. And so, if we focus on sort of the the consumer differences between those two, consumer litigation and medical finance, consumer litigation finance really is typically loans directly to the plaintiffs or to claimants, everyday living expenses, sort of a thing. Those are typically almost exclusively non-recourse loans. And so if the, what I mean by that is if the, the plaintiff dismisses the lawsuit or recovers nothing in the lawsuit, the lender doesn't get to recover or pursue that plaintiff separately. They can only recover from the proceeds of the litigation. But there are significant fees and interests in that. So there's a, a Georgia Supreme Court case. It's probably, I don't know, five or six years old now. Ruth. And I think it was like eight grand is what the plaintiff took out. And then ultimate attempt to collect was like 80 grand because of interest and fees. So you'll see sort of significant increases in interest and fees on, on the lit loans. On the medical finance side, you know, we've, we've talked through those examples of letters of protection and sort of the overhead models. Those are recourse loans, at least on paper, they're recourse loans. You'll see the referral networks involved in there and directed care. So those are sort of the big differences. Now, there are sort of litigation loans or litigation finance where the plaintiff will take out the loan, but the lender will pay the medical provider directly. And so that it, it's sort of a, a weird combination, if you will, of what we typically will define as litigation versus medical. But that, that's probably not something we need to go into today. No, that was perfect. That actually made a lot of sense. Uh, I appreciate that. And then, Jeremy, do you want to speak quickly to what are nuclear verdicts? Yeah, that's... Thanks for taking that one. That's obviously a big topic. And um, you're, you're going to be disappointed with the, uh, the lawyer-like answer that it depends. But I'll start it off with it depends. You know... Strictly speaking, I think a, a nuclear verdict is any verdict awarded by a jury or a, or a judge that kind of greatly surpasses a uh, reasonable or rational amount, right? So that could be somebody has a, a neck strain that's fully resolved and it was $1,500 worth of medical bills and the verdict comes back at $50,000. That's much higher than anybody would expect, right? So technically that, that could be considered a nuclear verdict, just way higher than what, what, uh, we see. And and what we see is what we see on a daily basis, right? We see a lot of these claims. So you kind of have an idea of what the value should be on those cases. But I think lately, and what many people think about is verdicts sort of in excess of, call it 10 to $15 million. And we're seeing, uh, and that's on, that's on injury cases. So we're seeing much more of those, of those verdicts coming through you know, we're seeing them in certain areas of the country. We're seeing them in places where you wouldn't have traditionally thought that juries would award those for. So, and not only are we seeing 10 to $15 million verdicts, we're seeing 50, 60, 100, $150 million verdicts that, that kind of were unheard of before. And in fact, I think there was a $1 billion verdict that just came out in Florida. Now, I have a feeling that's not collectible and I don't know the circumstances of those cases. But those are the numbers that, that folks are, are now talking about when we talk about nuclear verdicts. 
That's great. I appreciate that. That was a really good overview. And I know we're going to get more into it, more into the details regarding that in our future episodes. And we're also going to talk about Protective's first medical, major medical financing case on our next episode as well. So Nathan, Jeremy, thank you for this first episode. And we'll be moving forward, continuing to talk about medical financing and, and its and its impact on the insurance industry and how Protective deals with it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That does it for part one of our four-part series on medical financing. I want to say a big thank you to both Nathan and Jeremy for diving into medical financing with us. Join us again for part two, where we'll discuss how medical financing cases play out at Protective's first major medical financing case. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share it with a friend and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm Rudy Sallow, and this has been Safer Roads by Protective Insurance. Thank you.